patriotic millionaires digging in to save democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I'm not sure the origins of the phrase, eat the rich, But the simple sentiment is clear. Every rich person is a bad guy. They're all consumed by greed. No care for the common good. But, as H.L. Mencken famously said, for every complex problem there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. In the fire hose of news blasting at us 24-7, it's the easiest thing to quickly reduce the complex into the simple. Those who still argue that capitalism per se needs to be smashed are clearly not living in the world of the possible, or the necessary. I would argue that capitalism itself is not the problem. Greed is the problem. I mean, let's face it. This is America. People want to get rich. And way too many of us are living hand-to-mouth, barely scraping by. Especially in the age of COVID, people are suffering needlessly. The reality is that there is plenty of money to go around, really and not enough democracy. And of course, people are righteously angry, furious, in fact, that the government appears to be often a wholly owned subsidiary of the super-rich and greedy. Aside from the sad surrender to the fantasy of ending capitalism, there are complex fixes to the complex problems of democracy and the challenge of a government that recognizes that no one is really free if they are chained to a life of poverty. And not all people with money are greedy and selfish. Everyone is a citizen and can make a positive difference if they so choose. Are all rich people bad? Of course not. Think of Ted Kennedy. He was perhaps the greatest, most powerful, effective hero of working people in the late 20th century. And yes, he was wealthy. Which brings us to our guest today, Morris Pearl, who is chair of something called Patriotic Millionaires, and author of the upcoming book titled, rather directly, tax the rich. And he and that group are deeply concerned about economic fairness and democracy and are pushing hard for the For the People Act. They issued a brief press release titled, The For the People Act is our best chance to save American democracy. And our guest argues it's no exaggeration to say that without immediate and forceful action by Congress, without H.R. 1, our democracy may be entirely dismantled. Well, today we're going to discuss that bill moving forward, the shocking rejection of the $15 minimum wage by eight Senate Democrats, and Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax. Patriotic Millionaires is actively pushing for all these efforts. And despite the simplistic reduction, quite a few people with wealth support raising their own taxes. They are patriotic millionaires after all. Morris Pearl, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Great to be in your show, Bert. Thank you. Morris Pearl currently serves as chair of the Patriotic Millionaires. He's co-author, as I said, of the upcoming book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Richer. Previously, Mr. Pearl was managing director at BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms in the world, 
Prior to BlackRock, Mr. Pearl had a long tenure on Wall Street, where he invented some of the securitization technology connecting America's capital markets to consumers in need of credit. He is CFA charter holder, a member of CFA Institute, the New York Society of Securities Analysts, and on the board of Verified Voting and the Center for Political Accountability. And in his spare time. Uh-huh. Well, thanks again for being with us, Morris Pearl. I bet a lot of listeners have not heard of patriotic millionaires and are unfamiliar with the concept. So let's just start, if you could tell us, please, about the organization and your efforts. What sparked its creation, Patriotic Millionaires? Well, sure. Um, it started just over 10 years ago after the um, elections in 2010. We wanted President Obama to reject continuing the Bush tax cuts from 10 years before that. As you recall, he kind of compromised with the Republicans and got a few more months of unemployment insurance in exchange for letting the tax cuts continue on for another two years. But eventually, he and his staff realized we were actually helping him, having a group of rich people coming from the side of, we want a more fair tax system. We think rich people should pay higher tax rates than regular people that work for a living. And that sparked a creation of our group. We now have hundreds of members of about 20 paid staff people. And we actually work to help our members, including myself, get their voices across in the American uh, system here. Uh -huh. um, we're kind of like a press communications outfit, but instead of working for private companies, we're working for the efforts that we're trying to make to make America a more fair place and reduce inequality. And that doesn't get in the way at all with capitalism per se. It, it really doesn't. I mean, we have something other than that now with uh, a few big corporations dominating the whole thing. That's not really free market capitalism, but that's another subject we can talk about. We've got a lot of things to talk about. And through the centuries, ruling aristocracies have fought against too much democracy. Your members have some degree of wealth. And the statement by a patriotic millionaire says, the Republican Party has indicated that they see democracy itself as a threat to their political power. Why, why do they see democracy as a threat? And why don't you guys as sort of a little bit of the aristocracy, or at least a memory thereof? Well, it's true. Because when more people vote, they don't vote for Republicans who are working to help their rich and powerful remain rich and powerful. Right. Um, so and the Republicans are right. Democracy is a threat. They've introduced just in the past few months hundreds of bills and state legislators all over the country to reduce voting hours, to make it more difficult to vote, to have fewer polling places to have fewer days of voting. Yes. And that's all to get fewer people voting. They believe that voting should be a privilege of the rich and powerful, <laughs> or at least the well-to-do, and not sort of a universal thing that everyone does. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> I was raised in the 50s, and that just runs counter to everything I was taught in elementary school. But you're right. That's where the Republican Party is today. And as I say, we do have many things Sadly. to do. I'm sorry, what? 
sadly, it's, it's yes. true. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. Who'd have thunk it? We have many things to discuss here on the show today, including uh, uh, patriotic million involving patriotic millionaires. Let's start with the HR one, the For the People Act, which is starting to get a fair amount of attention. You write that the For the People Act is our last best chance to save American democracy. What are some of the components that would uniquely and at last, as the release says, correct the fundamental issues that have plagued our democratic system for decades and restoring free and fair access to the ballot box to every single American, end of quote. There's a lot to H.R. 1. Let's perhaps, so many different aspects of it. Let's start with the gerrymandering aspect. How does that hurt the practice of democracy and what does H.R. 1 do about it? Well, what's happening in a bunch of our states, particularly, for instance, Pennsylvania, is we're seeing people that live in the cities having their cities broken up into little pieces that are connected to large parts of the rural areas. So cities in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania and Central Pennsylvania and Ohio aren't really represented by anyone because each part of the city is a little piece of a mostly rural district. So we're seeing even though a majority of people in Pennsylvania voted for Democrats for Congress, a majority of the congressional representatives in Pennsylvania are Republicans. By a lot. It's not even close. And that's because they've arranged the districts. So there's a few districts that are almost entirely Democratic and lots of districts that are 45% Democratic across most of the state. So that means that there's far fewer representatives and there's far fewer people voting for Republicans and they get a va- they get a big majority of the congressional representatives from that state. People tell us that even if not a single person changes their votes, the Republicans could have a huge majority in the House of Representatives after the next election just from changing the lines of where the district lines are in some states like Texas and Pennsylvania and um you know, the center of the country there. And that's the kind of thing that it really makes our Congress unrepresentative after a while by having far more representatives representing rural areas with fewer people and far fewer representing urban areas that have lots of people. And that's one of the things we're afraid of. Oh, one of the, the ways, to, one of way to correct that, which won't be perfectly perfect, but it's better than nothing, is by having nonpartisan commissions deciding where to draw the lines, as is currently the case in California. Mm. So that's in H.R. 1. That would uh, accomplish that, create nonpartisan commissions. Yeah, we tried that here in New Hampshire. I was in the state center for quite some time, and uh, the governor vetoed a bill to have an independent commission to look at redistricting. It's they just they don't even hide the the anti-democratic with a small d aspect to their intentions. So HR1 the for the people act would uh it wouldn't affect anything unfortunately until the next census I believe is that correct which is in 2030. Um yes, I think so. I mean, I'm not yeah. I'm not a familiar with every technicality, but yeah, it'll take a while to take effect but I think it will make a huge difference after a while. One of the biggest things we're talking about is the political campaign finance reforms. Uh Here in New York City, we have a system where someone can run for mayor or city council and get a few hundred people to donate $100, 
or $200 and then get matching funds from a commission. And that allows people who are not brothers-in-laws of real estate developers <laughs> to actually run for office. And that's changed the face of the New York City Council by changing the faces in the New York City Council. And it's made a huge difference in the lives of so many working New Yorkers. And that's the kind of thing that nationwide make a huge difference in the, uh, in the state of our Congress. Currently, you pretty much have to know a bunch of rich people to run for Congress. Yes. You need millions of dollars to run for Congress. And it's hard to find millions of dollars without getting them from people that have money. <laughs> and that means that people running for Congress spend a lot of time with rich people. And um, they know in great detail about what the problems of the rich people are and what, what the solutions proposed by those rich people are. They don't have as much time to spend with the rest of their constituents. Yeah, it's true that uh, historically people with less income and less wealth don't tend to vote as much though they have a lot at stake because frankly they're not listened to and you know i absolutely right the the members of congress or the people who want to be congress people uh you know spend time with where the money is and that i think is one of the big problems with what happened with the with the Democratic Party, with the uh, move to the right and the Democratic Leadership Council back under Bill Clinton when uh, they went for, uh, you know, where the money is. That's where the party went, and that, that hurt a lot of people. And no question about it that more people across the country, more people vote for Democratic members of Congress than vote for Republican members of Congress, but because of redistricting as you said, Republicans, there are more Republicans elected. Right now it's about 50-50 thereabouts, but that has got to change, and H.R. 1 does that. And another aspect of H.R. 1 that you guys so strongly support, of course, is that working people are at a disadvantage when voting is limited to being able to show up and stand in a long line sometimes for a long time, on one day, the, fir the first Tuesday after the first Nove uh, Monday in November. And especially people who are earning minimum wage, they can't do that. <laughs> so it, they're, they're disenfranchised. What does the For the People Act do about this? And of course, the Republicans yeah, I hate mean, that. Well, Go ahead. I mean, the details, I mean, I, the details aren't that important. It, it has to have voting start 15 days before that Tuesday and polling place be open 10 hours per day at least. Mm -hmm. So those two together allowing 15 different voting days to vote and having polling places open for 10 hours a day will allow far more people to vote than is currently the case. So we think that's a very good thing. That's a good thing. Yes. Um, you know, we think, I mean, that is part of the problem and Republicans will tell you, actually they think that, Voting should be something that well-to-do people do and not so much that poor people do. So they think that restricting it is a good thing. And it's, it's not, it's, it's getting worse, but it's not really new. It's always right. been the case. Voting has been restricted in our country. It used to be only white people that owned land, right. white men who owned land. Right. You know, then it became other landowners. It was only a hundred years ago that women were allowed to vote universally right. in our country. Right. So this is uh, this is a struggle that's been going on for years, 
and it's been going up and down, and hopefully this will be a time that it, it goes up again. Uh, yes, yeah, so let's let's hope so. I think the demand is there, but it amazes me that the Republicans can be that open about it and not not get uh, not be afraid of uh, uh, backlash against it. And uh, it, it's interesting how <laughs> clear they are and not particularly subtle. The Republican Party has changed a lot. That's for sure. I mean, I remember when Barry Goldwater was considered far right. Not anymore. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking with Morris Pearl, who's chair of Patriotic Millionaires, who's author of a new book, uh, Tax the Rich. And Patriotic Millionaires is Patriotic Millionaires. They are rich. And they've written uh, an article called uh, the For the People Act is Our Best Chance to Save American Democracy. We're talking about that and other legislation that uh, patriotic millionaires support. And, and I can imagine that it might be a majority of federal legislators who are themselves worth at least $1 million. Under current campaign finance structure, moneyed elites certainly have an advantage in running, and fewer than 5% of House members cite having ever held a blue-collar job. How does this bill address the problem of good people who want to serve the common good, but they can't because of a lack of personal money or having to rely on the wealthiest contributors? They still need money. I mean, as long as we have TV stations that charge a lot of money for ads, uh, and I think we could address that as well sometime, but uh, how does this address the problem of people who are not rich or don't have rich friends uh, being able to, to run for office and raise the money. There must be some structure in HR1. Go ahead. The main thing is the campaign finance reform system I was talking about, whereas you'll be allowed to raise money from small donors and get six to one matching for that. Oh. So a $100 donation could actually be worth $700 in your campaign finance. And it's true, most Americans cannot afford to take time off from work to run for office. Of course. And that's frankly going to be true. Most Americans are too busy. Frankly, they've hard, hard enough time finding time to vote, much less being a full-time candidate for really? months. Yes. It's not going to be changed by this law. It will be alleviated a bit. Campaigns will be allowed to pay for child care and health mm. insurance. So being a candidate or a campaign worker, for that matter, can be will be a little bit easier. It turns out that a campaign, someone campaigning for Congress, can make themselves a staff member of their own campaign if they want to. Very few people do that because they think it looks bad. But hopefully, Americans will recognize that actually most Americans can't afford to run for Congress, and that's actually a reasonable thing to do is to is um, for a candidate to be a paid staff member of their own campaign. You know, I always, I always laugh, not laugh, but almost cry when uh -huh. I see people propose, oh, Congress people should not be paid if they don't, I don't know, set a balanced budget or finish their work or something. And what that would do, those proposals to have Congress people paid less would really make it even worse. Yes. And it only would be in Congress. Yes. I would actually propose that Congress people should be paid more so that anybody can afford to be a congressperson, even if you don't have wealth. Mm. Interesting idea. And as you talk about being able to uh, count babysitting as a legitimate expense, I understand now that 
renting a tuxedo for an event, campaign-related, uh, can be counted, but babysitters cannot be counted. I think I should correct oh. that. <laughs> so is that paid for, the the six-to-one? Is is that the Freedom from Influence Fund? I mean, where does... Uh, the, yeah. the, the How would that work? Do we... Where would the money come from? I guess uh, those convicted of white collar crimes would uh, would would pay for some of this. Why? Why is that important to uh, uh, patriotic millionaires? Well, because I mean that actually is not important to me, but it's important to some voters. They want to promote this law, saying that not one penny of your tax money is going to pay for political campaigns or political ads and things. So that's why they established this fund to be funded solely solely by fines from people convicted of white-collar crimes. Um, So when they're promoting this law, they won't have to argue against, oh, you don't want your tax money going to pay for more political ads, do you? When really, if you think about it, it's actually not so bad. The alternative is having only rich people deciding what should be in political ads. And I think having all the people um, is actually a better solution than having the rich people having more of a say than everyone else does. Makes a lot of sense. And all members of, of Congress currently rely on people with wealth to invest in their campaigns, for sure. What's the unique appeal of patriotic millionaires and unique influence, do you think, on members of Congress? Well, we have a different ability. There's, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of groups that are campaigning for all kinds of things. Yes. And a lot of people, the nuns and the bus and the fight for 15 can all go and talk about, you know, how important it is to have different policies. But we're one of the few that can go in with rich people and business people and investors and say that these progressive policies are actually what your rich people, your investors, your business people actually want. So there's not too many progressive groups that are coming in with business people and investors to speak out. And we're one of the few that does that. Ah. Interesting. I remember one of the things that really worked on ending the war in Vietnam when there were you know, all kinds of different groups pushing to, uh, to end the war. When there were business people against the war, Congress started to pay attention then. And that started to make a difference because, again, you know, they depend on, on money. So maybe they listen uh, even more. You know, I don't it's not like they're like taking bribes or something. Right. Right. I don't think they're like saying, oh, rich people want this. So we have to do it. It's more that they spend right. all of their time with rich people. So that's what they hear from all the time. So they when they listen to rich people talking they think that's what everyone thinks because they're spending all of their time in these little booths at 430 South Capitol street, making calls, (laughs) doing fundraising. So they think after a while that that's all of their constituents are the people on their call sheets that can make thousand dollar donations. And that's really the sad thing. And that's why we have to change the system. Interesting. Even the best Congress people, you know, they tend to forget the pe- about the people who they don't talk to after a while. Boy, you're right. I remember. You know, when, I was, was going to say, I remember in in uh, 2004, I think it was, when John John Edwards was running for president. And I asked him, you know, here in New Hampshire, we get to meet all of them. Uh, how much of your life do you spend asking for money? 
And he thought, and he said about 85%. <laughs> you know, you just have to. surprise me. Yeah, you just have to. I was at a cocktail party once in a penthouse here in New York. And a, can- a person running for Senate said, oh, it's a good thing I'm not a self-funder like someone else does. Because it's only at events like this where I get to meet regular people. <laughs> I just thought to myself, this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> if he thinks that we are the regular people. And he, but he might have. Oh my God. He might very well have thought that people at a very expensive Manhattan cocktail party on a penthouse apartment were regular people. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, one heck of a democracy if that's <laughs> thought of as regular people. Well, yeah. um, in the, the uh, 19th and 20th century, I mean, let's talk about being able to vote. There were not particularly subtle methods of preventing people of color from voting. They were called the Jim Crow laws, and they were outright Terror tactics, let's face it, Jim Crow laws. In 2021, as you mentioned earlier, there's over 250 bills, 250 bills at state levels to accomplish the same goal as Jim Crow laws, voter suppression. What are some of those impediments, and in what ways does H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, address that challenge? Well, the things are, as we were discussing earlier, having nationwide standards for things like hours of voting and what days voting should be open and things like that. Also for what types of ID cards will be satisfactory for voting. Um, you know, the fact is that the right has manufactured this entire fiction about people voting illegally. And that's yes. the biggest problem in America is we have to prevent people from voting illegally. And of course, if you want to prevent people from voting illegally, that's your only concern. You should prevent everyone from voting. That will certainly get rid of all illegal voting. Um, but it won't really saw, it won't really be a good thing by at least by my standards of what a good thing would be. So it's not an argument about tactics. Their tactics are fine. It's an argument of what the objective is. And I believe the objective is to get all of the people who are in our country to participate both in civics and voting and in economics, like by buying stuff and shopping and paying their bills and doing all those things that help investors and business people get rich. So if my goal is different than your goal, well, of course, how I want to accomplish the goal is different. But I, I propose that we need to first agree that the goal is to get everyone to participate in our country. And then we can discuss what, how best to accomplish that goal. Boy, and a lot of people really don't want people to be able to participate in democracy. It's it's funny, just as an aside, I'm reading a book about uh, uh, the British aristocracy in the House of Lords in the late 19th century. Uh, it, it was the law that the House of Lords people, they could vote legally from every property they owned. <laughs> so mm. one person, one member of the House of Lords voted 12 times, quite legally. Well, we don't have that now, luckily, but uh, uh, impediments to voting uh, are just, the Republicans don't want it because they know they would lose. And of course, President, former President Trump called H.R. 1, the For the People Act, a disaster, and he called it a monster. Well, it would be a disaster for people like him. Exactly. Who's right. (laughs) 
What does it do regarding financial transparency of a candidate for high office that Trump would particularly hate, that he personally would hate so much? What does H.R. 1 do about that? It actually requires candidate, well, people that win elections. It actually requires both disclosure and divestiture of assets that people would have conflicts with. It simply would not allow someone to be an office holder and have a be running a business at the same time, which, as far as I know, no, very few people besides Trump have actually right. tried to do anyway. Right. But it would be very explicit that, that would no longer be allowed. And I think that's a good thing. I think people who want to run for office should separate their personal financial business from their official um, from their official duties. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good idea. And it's, I mean, there's the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which already is there requiring that, but somehow that doesn't seem to be, uh, I mean, the only person to really violate that was the former president, number 45. And as I understand it, H.R. 1 would require what has traditionally been done, which is all people who win for high office disclose their federal tax payments. I mean, it's been there yeah. traditionally, but... You know, it's not too much to ask in a Republican form of government, I believe, Republic meaning of the people. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Morris Pearl, chair of Patriotic Millionaires, author of the uh, upcoming book, Tax the Rich. And we're talking about starting to talk about the For the People Act, Saving American Democracy. Another thing that, uh, uh, of course, uh, Trump recently said, and I hate to mention his name too often or often at all, he insisted that the election was stolen. Of course it was not. And this bill, H.R. 1, the For the People uh, Act, how would H.R. 1 increase the security of elections? Well, first of all, I don't really think security of elections is a great problem. True. Even though people claim it is. But it would actually send more money state have more federal money available for state and local oh. um i mean the, the election administration uh people uh-huh. um but yeah and yeah we do need more election administration in some places so i think that's a good thing too yeah we want our voices because, Go ahead. people have famously written the the purpose of having an election and counting the votes carefully is really so those people on the losing side can feel confident that at least their votes were counted correctly. Yeah. Currently, we've lost that because the former president, and as he told his people, they weren't treated fairly. So, of course, they're not happy. So that's the problem we have to solve is giving people confidence whether they win or they lose that, that the election was being run correctly. Yeah, it, this was, I mean, by all accounts, uh, in science, I think is more important than myth, but a lot of people prefer myth. This was a very, very secure election. No, really no question about that, but people don't want to believe that. But underlying whether people believe something or not is the law. And that's what we're talking about here. How laws can either hurt democracy or help democracy, make uh, democracy more widely available or not. And, Many Democrats, another aspect of what's going on these days that you guys are at least somewhat involved in is uh, the uh, $15 minimum wage. Many Democrats were 
uniquely outraged when eight allegedly Democratic senators voted no on the $15 minimum wage. You issued a statement insisting that there is, quote, no excuse for those senators. In what ways did the Senate, as you wrote, fail the American people? And in what ways was it wrong economically and politically? Talk about that, if you would, please, Morris. Well, yeah, I mean, I would like everyone in our country who working to make enough money to be able to pay their bills and, you know, pay their iPhone bills and buy ice cream and shoes and pay their rent and do all the things that help businesses survive and help our whole country do well. 70% of the economy in our country is based on consumer demand. So I want consumers that have enough money to demand stuff and get it. So that's what we need. And that's what will be good for our, all the people in our country, both the rich and the poor. And I frankly think it was a bad idea politically, too. I don't see why anyone wants to run for office, you know, on the slogan, oh, I cooperate with the Republicans to not raise the minimum wage. Yeah. That's the way to get votes in New Hampshire? <laughs> I don't think so, you know? Um, you know, I've been to New Hampshire. Well, I, you know, I don't think people there want lower wages. And so, this show plays on, I, um, on stations all across the country, actually, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the state of Washington. And nobody wants, I mean, you can't live on $7 and, what, 25 cents an hour. And, you know, it should be a living wage. It's just, it just, it boggles my mind how any Democrat, I mean, the Republicans, yeah, I understand but Democrats voting against $15 minimum wage? I just don't understand that. How is it? I can see how it's it's wrong economically that, you know, as, as someone said, when everyone does better, everyone does better. And uh, it, it's it's just wrong uh, politically, too, I think. What, what's your sense of that? Why is it wrong politically, aside from the obvious economics? Well, that, that's what I was saying, is that People who run for people are going to run for office. <laughs> Excuse me. People are going to people are running for re-election. I think they'll be better off running for election, campaigning and saying, "Oh, I stood firm and I I insisted on getting our way and raising the minimum wage, even though the Republicans were against it." Rather than saying, "Oh, I cooperated with the Republicans and helped them to keep the minimum wage from being raised." I mean, that's what seems to me the politics are on the side of those who want to raise the minimum wage, not those who want to prevent it. Um, you know, so that's my suggestion. If anyone's running for office, be in favor of raising the minimum wage. I would think so. Well, some people say, well, small businesses would get hurt. They can't pay, you know, a, a legitimate small business. They can't pay $15 well, an hour. Because they're thinking that, oh, we're going to pay this money and it'll just disappear out the door. <laughs> that's not the way it works when everyone raises the minimum wage at the same time that means that all your customers are getting raises too if you talk to the bar owner he's a lot more concerned about how much beer money all of his customers have than about how much the wages are of the one guy standing behind the bar pouring the beer (laughs) and that applies to most small businesses not coal mining so and a few other things like that where they extract minerals from the earth. But most small businesses 
are much more concerned about their income of their customers yes. than the income of their employees. So that's why it doesn't work to say, oh, you should raise the minimum, the wages just for the workers of your business. That doesn't help them. But seeing all of his customers get raises, that is a winning idea. And that's why the small business people in our group of patriotic millionaires are in favor of raising the minimum wage. As Yeah, it helps everybody. And when I remember there was this wonderful uh, pizza guy locally who talked about people got to have more money in their pocket so they can buy more pizzas. <laughs> it's just that simple to increase the demand. Yeah. You have to increase the demand. There's one other bill that uniquely affects people of wealth. And that's a very big term, wealth. What the heck is that? You know, there's the top one-tenth of one percent, but then there's, you know, the top five percent. There's a huge, huge variance amongst that, uh, uh, you know, sector of the economy. But that, again, is another story. Um, it, it's back in the 1950s when that commie liberal Dwight Eisenhower who was a Republican, of course, was president. And he, he actually uh, suggested a 92% tax on that portion of income above a certain threshold. This, the, the new bill, the uh, one legislation proposed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, does not go anywhere near that amount, which was again put forward by a Republican. It was a centerpiece of a 2020 Democratic presidential campaign. This uh, new uh, wealth tax, how would it work? And has patriotic millionaires taken a position on it? Are you, are you guys uh, willing to be taxed more? Um, well, just, <laughs> so I, well, yes, we're willing to be taxed more. Yes. Um, I don't think I don't know if we've taken the official position on this particular bill yet, um, but we're we're working through a bunch of bills. The basic issue, one of the issues, though, of our tax system is that you pay a tax in the percentage of your taxable income. Of course, that sounds obvious. But your taxable income has nothing to do with how much money you spend, how much money you make, how much of anything. I have not worked in six years. I live here in my apartment on Park Avenue quite well, and I have almost no taxable income. Uh, I pay very little in taxes. Um, and that's because I have lots of investments from, you know, many years ago. And I pay either lower taxes or no taxes as I sell some of my investments to get money to live on. So what Senator Warren is proposing is taxing based on how wealthy someone is. Uh. And not even the top 1%, just a fraction of the top 1% of people would be subjected to this tax. But really... Most people who are listening to your show, Bert, yes. already pay a wealth tax because most of your listeners are homeowners and most homeowners pay real estate tax. So they already pay a wealth tax on the vast majority of their wealth, which is their homes. But the very rich people do not. Yeah. For the very rich people, their homes are a small fraction of their wealth and most of their wealth is in the businesses or parts of business they own stock in. So this would be subjecting to those rich people the same kind of wealth tax, actually a lower percentage of wealth tax, than most regular working Americans already pay. Oh. And we think it's necessary because the very rich people who are investors simply do not have 
taxable income. And so the concept that taxes should be based on income does not work in a fair way when you're comparing regular working Americans to the very rich. So how would this work? I, I'm not very familiar with it, the, the Warren proposal. Well, the basic idea is that those few of us who have tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars yeah. would have to report how wealthy they are and pay a one or two or three percent of that amount of wealth as a tax to the government when they're that wealthy. Even after they pay this tax, they'll still have tens of millions or yeah. billions of dollars right. left over. Yeah. So we don't think that it'll have a the deleterious effect on their lifestyles or their spending, but it would tend to make the system a lot more fair than it currently is. And I, I wonder, you know, there's not that many uh, people in the top 1%. You know, patriotic millionaires, you have, uh, what, a couple hundred members or something like that? And I wonder what percentage, yeah. I wonder what percentage of, of people who have you know, say $1 million worth or more might be okay with paying a little more taxes. Because as you say, it won't affect really anything at all. And this, I, I am amazed. I think someday there'll be a psychiatric treatment for people who are extremely wealthy, hyper rich, and have this, are in a frenzy for more, more, more. You have to have more. It's bizarre to me. I mean, there comes a point where, you know, there's nothing wrong with being rich. This is America, after all. Nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, but taxing it just a little bit more. I wonder what, if you had, do you have any guess as to what percentage, just a wild guess, might of, of you know, wealthy people might be interested in, and paying a little bit more just so we can have a more solid economy and, you know, more demand from more people. Like we used to have a big middle class in this country, you know, we really did. And I know it's hard to believe for some people, but I wonder how many, what percentage of wealthy people would be okay with paying a little bit more taxes. Any guess? Yeah. I, I think it's actually a pretty high percentage, Bert. I think that a lot of people realize that. And we're not talking about, people that are just millionaires. Right. There are a lot of millionaires that are like retired college professors who have, you know, yeah. saved up all their luck. Yeah. We're talking about people of tens of millions of dollars, a whole different stratosphere yes. than your just standard everyday millionaires. Yeah. But I think a lot of people understand that. It's just that they don't really have nearly as much incentive to speak out, to go to Washington, to sweat through the halls of Congress as yeah. do the small number of people who actually are greedy and don't want to pay more taxes, yeah. those few greedy people have a huge incentive to go lobby for their point of views, much more so than the rest of us do, unfortunately. Uh, as I said in the beginning, it's, it's not wealth that's the problem. It's greed. I, I really don't understand that. Again, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but, but greed can be uh, an ugly thing. And in this COVID year, the richest Americans reaped huge gains while 10 million Americans remain out of work as a result of the pandemic. Business groups and Republicans have already begun to raise concerns about President Biden's tax plans, which are far less of a hit on the wealthiest than this plan. So is it time? Do you think it is time for a wealth tax? How do you think this will play in this Congress? They have a lot on their plate. How do you think it'll play? 
it, I think we've moved the window of conversation a lot. Uh-huh. I think that some proposals weren't even on the table five years ago or were like far left fringe ideas uh-huh. are now like front and center being discussed by members of the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. And so I think we moved the window a lot. You know, is Elizabeth Warren proposal going to be enacted into law? Well, not this week, but we're moving in the right direction. Right. And I think the patriotic millionaires has been very effective in helping our members speak out about these things and sort of move the entire narrative in our direction. I think we're seeing movement. I think we're going to see a reversal of some of the changes that are made in the end of 2017. And I think that we're going to see things getting better. I really do. And what you're talking about the end of 2017 was uh, uh, Trump's gift to the wealthiest people in America. It just, you know, if we yes. can reverse that. And there's, you know, there's so much money out there. My goodness gracious, there really is. I mean, not just the, the waste of money in the government, but there's, you know, for, the, for Trump's, you know, tax cuts, and for that matter, Reagan's tax cuts, They've done some harm to the country, I think, and and especially to the idea of democracy. And, you know, it's funny how people on the right say, well, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Well, we have a republic which functions with a democracy. And democracy, a lot of us think, is a good thing. And that's what we're talking about here today. Bert Cohen on the Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Morris Pearl, uh, who's author of the uh, upcoming book, Patriotic Millionaires, of which there are apparently quite a few. And we're talking about the For the People Act and uh, what can be done to to improve democracy and how patriotic millionaires can be uh, a significant, uh, rather unique player in this whole thing. I, I find it curious reading about, and again, I'm a history buff, junkie, whatever it's called, uh, reading about the European revolutions of 1848 uh, that the most passionate defenders of the aristocracy were the peasants. They were the, that's what stopped a lot of the revolutions, was the peasants were dedicated to uh, the aristocracy. Obviously, that continues in the 21st century. You know, that, that people who don't have money are some of the biggest defenders of the wealthiest. Somehow they believe in the trickle-down myth, which has never been true. Do you, do you see a change uh, in, in, in this, in the working people of this country, or are, are, are they still, I, I don't know. I really have no idea. What's your sense? I mean, I don't really know either. I'm not a political prognosticator. I do think that the other side has been very effective in telling the people who are doing very poorly that their enemy is the people who are doing slightly less poorly than they are. Yeah. That's who they're competing with. And please ignore the guy behind the curtain who's, you know, miles ahead of you and just concentrate on the guy who's running next to you trying to keep up and push him down. Um, and that's unfortunately become our philosophy. They're telling working Americans, oh, your enemies are these Mexican immigrants. Right. Of course, that only works in places that don't have any Mexican immigrants. Um, Sorry. You'll notice the place where most, the places that are most concerned Mexicans in immigrants is Montana. And, oh. <laughs> um, actual states in Mexico, it's not an issue at all. Um, but yes, yeah, the right has been very effective in that. 
keeping people down by making them, you know, they're the enemies of the people uh, next door, you know, or the, the other people that they yeah. have to fight them. And the real money, you know, the, the, the very wealthiest people just uh, just laugh at it all. And this uh, uh, proposed uh, Elizabeth Warren tax, the wealth tax, a lot of money would go toward education and child care and certainly billionaire wealth. I can't even imagine. I mean, a thousand million? Who the heck needs a thousand million? I'm sorry, but I think that's a little much. Uh, billionaire wealth has been growing faster than the economy for the last 40 years. Would such a tax be bad for the economy, this this uh, uh, wealth tax, do you think? Well, of course not, because when wealthy people get become more wealthy, and that's the point Thomas Piketty made, um, as well, as if you your wealth is high enough, then your wealth increases at a faster rate than you can spend money. Uh-huh. I'm wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. If you're, if the amount of money you make is more than you spend every year, sure. you become wealthier. The next year, it's an even bigger difference because you're starting from a bigger base. And so and once you get to a certain point in wealth, your wealth naturally goes up. If you're below a certain point, your wealth goes down every year because you need money to live on. And so the the very rich and the poor are getting farther and farther apart every year. Hmm. And address that would be a good thing. So, yes, I think this would be fine. And, I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of more progressive taxation, of having rich people pay higher tax rates than people who have to work for a living, not lower than is the, currently the case. People who are not in the upper economic class often say, well, wait a minute. They worked hard for their money. Why do you want to tax them even more? Why do you want to, you know, confiscatory policies? Don't they deserve it? Well, yeah, of course they deserve it, but it's not a question of, <laughs> it's a question of everybody following the rules and doing their fair share. I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm right. just saying they pay their fair share. The same way if you want to join a country club, you have to pay the country club dues. Mm. And we think rich people should have higher tax rates than people have to work for a living. It's not, we're not saying they're bad people or right. something. No. Even, of course, many rich people started out very rich also. Yes. The majority of rich people were born as rich people. Yeah. Um, although many became far richer, you know, during their lives. Right. Uh, you know, a quarter of the people in the Forbes, whatever list did nothing to become rich other than being born to rich parents. Yes. Um, you know. Born on third base, as my friend Chuck Collins has said, and you probably know him. But yeah, <laughs> I wrote the foreword for that book. Aha, uh -huh. terrific guy. Uh, democracy, which is what we're talking about here, requires not only an educated citizenry but also a thriving middle class. Back in the last Gilded Age in the 1890s, you know there was a huge gap between the very rich and everybody else. I th I think it's at least as bad now. I'm not sure, but this. Really, I, I imagine young people these days find it hard to believe there used to be a large, wide, thriving middle class in this country. So when there's a few obscenely rich and a lot of poor, how does that alone threaten our fragile democracy? Well, because it makes people feel like they're second-class citizens. Because they actually are second-class citizens in many cases. That's why we're seeing people marching in the streets. I mean, yes, people are marching in the streets because someone was murdered in Minneapolis or New York or many other places. 
but really it's because they feel like they're not being treated as first-class citizens, and we have to change that. At, cert- at a certain point, we'll get to the point where people are just going to stop cooperating anymore at all, no. and then the whole thing will fall apart. Um, you know, it's, it's not written in stone that, that the poor people will sort of be cooperating all the time. You know, when we've had uprisings before and governments changing and yes. it didn't work out very well for, you know, the czar in Russia for <laughs> the Russian revolution. Yes. It, and even in, within my lifetime, you know, they tried gross inequality in South Africa. Right. That did not end for the rich people. True. And speaking of the czar, he was urged, as I understand it, to make reforms because people were literally starving in the streets. And had he made some reforms, they might have avoided the the horror of Bolshevism, which came later and, you know, was not really a good thing, I don't think, according to my values. Well, in the new administration, the Biden administration, I must say I'm very impressed with him so far. He's not Bernie Sanders, but... He's pretty good. Uh, what unique role uh, in this un- in this new administration can and should wealthy patriots play? I think just giving them the confidence and the courage to take progressive action, knowing that the people are behind them, not thinking that a few guys who own coal mines in West Virginia actually represent all business owners in America. Yeah. I think those of us who actually do have consumer-based businesses, like almost all businesses, yes. have to stand up and be heard and speak out and say that we actually want a robust middle class filled with consumers, yes. and that's what our business needs, not lower taxes for business owners. Yeah, you know better than to believe in a trickle-down. It's amazing to me how people have ever believed that. It never, ever works. Well, if people want to find out more about patriotic millionaires, what they can do to participate, uh, is there some sort of something on the Internet you can point them to? Sure. Patrioticmillionaires.org. Take a look at patrioticmillionaires.org, and you can see about our group, and you can sign up. You can order Tax the Rich on Amazon. It'll be delivered in the middle of April, right around Tax Day. Yeah. And read all about it. Morris Pearl, thank you so much today. And there, there is some degree of hope. Thanks so much for being with thank us you. today. Great to, be in your, great to be in your show. All right. And we can perhaps keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. Every day I wake and everything is broken, turning off my phone just to get out of bed, get home every evening, and history's repeating, turning off my phone cause it's hurting my
Just preach, baby. 